Today we'll be talking, kind of focusing on, on the wine as we prepare to receive communion today. And we'll be reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is found on page 863 in your pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along. But before we read that, I invite you to bow your heads and join me in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we come to you now with open hearts, hopeful to hear your word. We pray by the grace of your spirit that the words we hear and the thoughts of our hearts will lead us to your will for all of us as your church and for each of us as your children. Dear God, we love you. We thank you for your love. Amen. So again, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. And when the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after. The guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. As we prepare to receive communion today, I do want to say a special thank you to all those people who work so hard to prepare our elements for communion. Carl Farrell and others who spend timeless uh, hours uh, working to make sure we have everything that we need to, to celebrate communion. You don't really, you always take these things for granted until something happens and communion goes wrong or the, the bread or the, the wine runs out. That actually has happened to me before in my life. When I was growing up at my little church in Greer, South Carolina, we had, our elders had prepared to serve communion just like we serve it with trays and with plates. They had gathered together and cut all the little bits of Wonder Bread into those little tiny cubes just like we'll have them today. And they have a special pitcher with a special tiny little, little spout that they can use to pour into those little tiny cups that we're going to use. And apparently on that particular Sunday, a few more people showed up than we were expecting. They passed the trays along. They, they started at the front. They didn't have uh, uh, stations like we do, so they started at the front and went all the way to the back. And as they passed the bread about, the bread, there was enough for everybody. But when they started passing the cups, they realized they were not going to have enough. In fact, when they got up to the balcony, to you people sitting way back in the back, I see y'all up there, by the way. <laughs> when they got up to, sit, to serve those people in the back, there were not enough cups for them to have communion. Luckily, one of the elders was a former Episcopalian, and she ran down the, well, I'd say walked down the steps, came up to the, the table, and took the chalice that the minister had used and walked it back up to the steps so that each of the people who had not had a little cup could drink out of the same cup together. Now, Catholics and Episcopalians have been doing that for years, but Presbyterians worry about cough and flu season. 
And so, as you might imagine, a few of them were a little reluctant to drink out of that same cup. But finally satisfied that the ones who wanted it took it, they brought the chalice back down and set it down, thinking that everyone had been served until that elder realized that the elders along the front row had not been served yet. And so the minister served little pieces of bread to each of the elders on the front row and then handed the cup to the person on this end and each elder slowly passed the cup down, taking a drink out of the chalice. You might imagine what the two people on this end were thinking about (laughs) as the chalice came forward. And the truth is that at that next session meeting, they voted unanimously to buy more cups and more... Uh, plates for the church. It's a shame when the elements run out. In fact, it's important to try to have enough for everybody. That's a part of our faith. It's a part of our theology that if you want to come and receive communion from us, that we should be ready, that everyone should be served. Whoever wants to receive communion should be served. But it's not just a, a matter of theology. It's a matter of hospitality. We want everyone to feel welcome at God's table and welcome at our own homes when we serve food or serve uh, welcome people and visitors to our house at our own homes. We want people to know that we thought about them, that we planned ahead for them, that we were prepared for them. And it's a little bit, well, kind of a tragedy when we're not quite ready. We're a little bit embarrassed when something like that happens. When you come to Wednesday night and there's not quite enough banana pudding for you or something along those lines. And that's what happens in our passage from the Gospel of John this morning. Jesus and the disciples and Mary have been invited to a wedding in Cana. And they go to the wedding to celebrate. And weddings back in that day were were long, week-long events. They took place, not just the ceremony, but a festival almost, where the bride and the groom welcomed guests in. The groom sort of uh, planned the whole event, prepared for the whole event, made sure there was enough provisions for the whole event. And at some point during that week, Jesus and the disciples showed up, and, and something happened on that day. Tragically, the wine ran out. Now, scholars will tell you that Mary must have had some sort of connection with the family because she immediately wants something to be done. She goes to her son, Jesus, and says, you've got to do something, probably giving him that look that my mother has given me many times in my life. You better do something about this. And Other scholars will even say that maybe the reason why the wine ran out was because Jesus and his rowdy friends came to the wedding, and they were not expected there. But in any event, Mary expects Jesus to do something, and he reluctantly does. He invites the servants to to take these large stone jars that hold gallons and gallons of water. And these gallon jars were actually methods of hospitality, too. They were were there for people to, to be able to practice the Jewish purification rites, not only to wash their hands, but so that they could come and and continue to follow their religious beliefs even when they came to these sorts of, of functions. Jesus said, Go and get all six of those jars and fill them up to the brim so that they're overflowing. They did what he asked, and then they took a little bit of that water over to the chief steward, and somehow, some way, it was no longer water, but it was wine, the best wine, the best wine that that steward had ever tasted. Crisis averted. The party can go on. 
Well, I don't know about you, but I've always felt a little uncomfortable about this first miracle of Jesus that takes place in the Gospel of John. I've always wanted Jesus' first miracle to be something maybe a little more serious, a little more life-sustaining, maybe, maybe feeding people who are hungry, or maybe raising Lazarus from the dead. That would be something dramatic that Jesus could start with, sort of foundational, but that's not what he does. Instead, he, he turns water into wine at the request of his mother. For good Presbyterians and, and, and people like us, I've found time and time again other people are uncomfortable with this too, that, that Jesus is working with wine here. This isn't something we want our Savior to do. We want our God to do miraculous things, life-saving things, not just to keep the celebration going. It's probably because wine throughout the, the Bible has had many different uses, many different symbolism, that, that if, you, if you read the Old Testament and you see how wine is used, it's used in lots of different ways. It's used actually as an offering that, that people were called and commanded to give to God when they brought their offering to God in the temple. But it also, as you might imagine, is used as a symbol of unfaithfulness, of, of drunkenness, when we, over, uh, when we overestimate what God has given us or maybe under underestimate what God has done for us, when we, we underestimate how faithful God is to us and we're unfaithful, that wine can be a symbol of, of drunkenness or unfaithfulness too. But here in this passage, I have to believe that it means something a little different. The wine in this passage is a symbol of God's abundant joy. And if you read the Old Testament, it's used that way time and time and time again too. That God's abundant joy, that God's plans for God's people. Just like that place flowing with milk and honey, there are times in the Old Testament where God also blesses people with, with vine, fruits of the vine that grow and produce wine with cups running over, as you might remember from Psalm 23. That this is a symbol of God's abundant joy and abundant love that God wants for each and every person, for every person in God's creation. That this first miracle that Jesus does for the people at the wedding of Cana is a command to us, a reassurance to us that God wants us to be joyful. Now that might seem like a pretty, oh, I don't know, a superficial uh, lesson that we're supposed to learn from this passage today. And yet I can tell you in a, in a group full of people who are fairly affluent, we need to remember from time to time how important it is for us to be joyful, to be grateful, to be thankful for all that God has done for us. And to trust that what God wants for us is not just to survive, but to thrive. And time and time again in my life, I have experienced that kind of joy, not from people who have a lot, but from people who don't have much at all and are grateful for the little bit they have. Let me tell you what I mean. When I was uh, serving as an intern at a church in Charleston, South Carolina, it was during my, my uh, seminary days, and I got to pick where I went to go, so of course I picked close to the beach. I went to Charleston. But one of my best friends chose to, to work at a homeless shelter in Atlanta at Clifton Presbyterian Church. It was a, a men's homeless shelter there. And every day, day in and day out, he saw these men who were always downtrodden and despairing and hurting and he decided that one of the things he wanted to do was try to do something to lift their spirits, to give them joy. And so believe it or not, he wanted to plan a beach vacation for these homeless men. 
Now, as you might imagine, the church was a little bit concerned. Why are we going to raise money when these people are hungry? Why are we going to raise money to, to send them to the beach? But he called me, and I arranged for them to stay in our fellowship hall at our church in Charleston. And, and as soon as they arrived one Friday afternoon, the first thing they said they wanted to do is, let's drive to the beach. And so we all jumped in our vans and drove down to, to Folly Beach, right there off the coast of Charleston. And they jumped out of the, the vans, and there was one man in particular, a little short guy named Martin, and before he could even get his shoes off, he jumped out of the van and ran headlong, diving into the waves, all of his clothes still on. I thought he was crazy. He came back out of the water, and I said, do you need a towel? And gave him the little towel that he had, and he just kept saying, I needed this, I needed this, I needed this. And he finally admitted, I needed a vacation from being homeless. He needed to experience a little bit of joy in this world that was so full of despair. He needed to remember that this world was a world that was filled with God's love and that God still loved him. Even though day in and day out, he didn't always feel that love. I saw that joy on his face and I realized how much I needed to remember that joy too. Jesus turns water into wine, wine that overflows, more wine than these people could have ever consumed because God's love is abundant. And God wants us to experience abundant joy day in and day out and to know that God's plan for us is joy. Now this might be a really good place to stop this sermon. We've got communion to do and other things, but... Before I do that, there is one other lesson that we need to make sure we catch. We don't want to miss it. In fact, some of the people in the Scripture miss it. The steward, when he takes that wine and realizes what wonderful wine it is, he goes to the bridegroom, the one who's responsible for this feast, and he tells them, Oh, how wonderful this is that you've kept the best wine until last. The whole time, never realizing the source of that joy, the source of that abundance, the source of that life. It says the disciples knew, it says the servants knew, but so many other people around him didn't quite know just yet. It would take several months later, several chapters later in the Gospel of John when Jesus would gather around that table with his disciples and hold up another glass of wine and tell them about his death and tell them about life everlasting. And then he would get on his knees and wash the feet of his disciples. And it was then, in those moments, that Jesus told them that the source of that joy was giving your life to God. Not living for yourself, not trying to build yourself up over your neighbors, not trying to gain more money or even drinking it out of a bottle. It is, comes from God and God alone, from dedicating your life to something bigger than yourselves, sacrificing your life and your glory for God's glory. He taught that to His disciples and teaches that to us that we must never forget in those moments in our lives when we need to feel joyful that it does not come from all those superficial things around us in the world, but it comes from day in and day out trying to dedicate our lives to God who dedicated His Son's life to us.
I'll give you a little example of that. Just yesterday, we here at this church uh, had a memorial service for a wonderful woman named Karen McGee. Many of you were here at that service. If you didn't get to know Karen, uh, Karen was a member of this church for over 40 years. She came here as a pastor's wife 40 years ago, and as her son said yesterday, stayed for 40 years. And we are so thankful that she did. But if you ever got to know Karen, you would know Karen had many pits and valleys in her life. She had lots of difficulties, including her own health, including the struggle and the suffering of her daughter and the tragic death of her daughter, many other heartbreaks, many other heartaches. And time and time again while she was here, you all would come to me and say, I'm worried about Karen or I just don't know how she does it. How does she stay so faithful? But in the days leading up to her funeral, right before she died, in fact, I went to Karen and I talked to her. We had some time to plan this funeral service, and I asked her specifically, what did she want me to say at her funeral? And guess what she wanted me to say? In the midst of all of those difficult times, in the midst of all of those pits and valleys, she said, Brad, tell my church how much joy they brought me. Tell my church, tell Faith Presbyterian Church how much joy they gave me. All this time I was worried that she had no joy in her life. And every single day, you all brought her joy. She felt joyful, not because of the things that she had, not because prayers were always answered. She felt joyful because she had this connection to her friends and her family at this church who loved her, who supported her, and who represented for her the love of God. In just a few moments, we're going to come to this table. You're going to be invited. You're going to be invited to come and take a drink from that cup. And that cup is there to remind you of an abundant love of God. It's there to remind you that God wants you. God's plan for you is a joyful, everlasting life. There are many other ways you could try to find joy in this world. But when we connect ourselves to the source of life, when we connect ourselves to the source of abundant joy, that joy that comes from the grace of God will never be quenched. That joy that comes from the grace of God through the highs and the lows, the pits and the valleys of our life, we can be sure that that joy, that abundant joy, will never ever run out. To the glory of God. Amen.